Well, hello and welcome everybody. Once again, it's such a privilege to be able to be with you and to be able to unpack God's words together. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we have been in a series called For the Sake of the Gospel and we've been focused in on the letter of 2 Timothy. Shelley preached the last message in that series last week. If you haven't seen it, I recommend you go watch it. It was a fantastic message. Today, though, we're in between series and uh, we get to do, or I get to do what we call a one. A one is a series of one-off messages that we get to preach uh, that slot in in between the different series that we go through as a church. So today, I'm excited because I really feel like God has given me a word to bring to us and we are going to be diving into the book of Revelation. And no, we're not going to be looking at the mark of the beast. We're not going to be unpacking end time theology. We're going to be dealing with something specific that I believe God is calling us to as individuals and as a church together. And uh, what God, I believe, is calling us to is inherent in one of the verses in chapter one of the book of Revelation. So we're going to be reading from chapter one from verse 12 through to verse 18. And then we'll, we'll unpack that together. I trust that you'll be blessed and that God will speak to you today. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to, to the book of Revelation chapter one. If you have it on your cell phone, that's fine. If not, it's going to come up on the screen now. From verse 12, chapter one of Revelation through to verse 18, this is what it says. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Now, just to bring a bit of perspective and some context to this passage, this is written by the disciple John, the disciple that was closest to Jesus as Jesus walked on this earth. John and Jesus had a very tight relationship. And and, and, and once Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and once he had ascended back into heaven, John and the rest of the disciples carried on preaching the gospel. And John was exiled onto the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel, for being a Christian. And it was while he was there that Jesus reveals himself to John and gives him the revelation, which we now know as the book of Revelation. And right in the beginning, John is speaking about this voice that he hears speaking to him. And so he turns around to see who's speaking to him. And he sees the unveiled, resurrected Jesus in all of his glory. And I believe inherent in verse 17 is this thing that God is calling us back to as his people. I believe God is calling us back to a reverent fear of God again. That needs to be balanced with and coupled with the grace of God. In verse 17, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then Jesus reaches out and touches him with his right hand. And he says, do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I think as I've been in church and as I've been a Christian for some time, 
I've noticed that there's a trend towards focusing more on ourselves than on God and his glory. And I think there's a place where we need to recognize what God has done for us and celebrate that. But when the focus becomes us more than it becomes about God himself and his glory, I think we've missed it. There's a tendency to to preach and to focus solely on the love and the grace and the gentleness of God and the mercy of God. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. But I think when we overweight the scale on that side and we forget the righteous holiness of God, it becomes dangerous for us. And I think in this verse, particularly in verse 17, we see that there's this beautiful balance between the reverence of God and the fear of God that comes from recognizing who he is and the grace of God that's coupled with that at the same time. And I think we need to get that order right. There needs to be an appropriate response before the Lord from us as his people. And we need to allow an opportunity for God to touch us with his right hand in a gracious way and bring us back up onto our feet. And so we're going to look at some of the things that happened for John in this passage, particularly in verse 17, and hopefully apply that to our lives and, and, and maybe by the Spirit have something revealed to you that's necessary for you to start doing in order to experience this again in your life. And when I say you and us, I include myself in that. I think there's a place where I need to have the Holy Spirit restored to me an accurate perspective of the God that I serve. I really do desire this beautiful balance between the fear and reverence of God in my life and the grace of God. So we know what's going on in this passage. um, But one of the first things that happens for John is he gains some much needed holy perspective. John's previous experience with with Jesus was Jesus, the God man, Jesus, uh, the, the son of God in human form, who it says did not consider equality with God something to be grasped while he was here. So Jesus was fully human at the same time, fully God, but didn't rely on his godness uh, to do what he did here on earth. And so John and the disciples get to know Jesus as human and they build a relationship with him, obviously, and they love him. But that sort of limited their perspective on who Jesus really is. It's almost like if we could harness the sun or lasso the sun and, and rope it in and confine it to a room with four walls and a, and a floor and a ceiling and possibly a door. It'll be like putting the sun and all of its brilliance into that room and then us being on the outside of the room, looking at the four-walled room. We wouldn't see the sun in all of its splendor. And certainly if we did, I'm sure we would die. We would be consumed by the heat and its radiance and its radiation. Sunburn would be, a, uh, well, we would have a new understanding of what really sun, sunburnt means. But standing on the outside of the room, I'm sure we would get some perspective as to what was going on inside the room. I'm sure there would be cracks in the wall, possibly through the keyhole around the frame of the door where, where rays of brilliant light would come pouring out because of the brightness of the sun. Perhaps we would see the heat or feel the heat radiating off of the walls from the, from the incredible heat that the sun produces uh, if we had to be able to lock it inside a room. I'm sure we'd be able to even hear sounds of muffled, raging fire. This is pretty much the description of what John the disciple and the other disciples saw or experienced with Jesus as they walked on earth with him. They were on the outside of the room and the glory and the full radiance of the greatness of God was locked into human form. 
And no matter how close they got to Jesus, I mean, John even took a nap on the shoulder or the chest of Jesus one day as they sat under a tree and rested from ministry. No matter how close they got to him, they still didn't see the full picture and perspective of the one that they served. But in this passage, something really beautiful happens. And the walls fall down and the radiance and the glory and the full picture of Jesus is seen by John. And when John sees him, he doesn't go, oh, there you are. I've been wondering where you were, where you were and when you were going to show up. John doesn't say that. John doesn't ask him a question. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't stand there speechless. John is overwhelmed with terror, trembling and fear, so much so that it seems he loses control of his body and he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. He sees feet of bronze. He sees eyes flaming fire. He hears a voice that sounds like many thundering waters. He sees a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. John was completely overwhelmed. Church, I want to say I think we need that in our day. I think we need to be overwhelmed with Jesus again. I think we need to be captivated by his awe. And then I think we need to be captivated and in awe and wonder of the greatness of our God and the ferocity of our God, the sheer brilliance of our God. I think we need that. I think we need the perspective John had, and that needs to come first. I think we need to understand into whose presence it is that we come and are able to come so freely. So John gains perspective, but John also gains an awareness possibly that he had, but not as full as he got it on this day. He gains this, uh, a, a full awareness of himself in light of who God is. See, in the light of Christ's unrestrained splendor and glory that was revealed on that day, John feels this crashing and crushing weight of humility as he recognizes his sinfulness and how significant that is in the light of the glory of God. There's this total sense of unworthiness and inability to enter. And in many ways, John doesn't say it, but he demonstrates it in his body as he falls at the feet of Jesus as though dead. He says and he, and he, and he echoes what Isaiah says when Isaiah has an encounter with the Lord. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I know many people will go, but Roland, what about the grace of God? Jesus touched John. He didn't destroy him. He didn't destroy Isaiah. And I would say to you, yes and amen. That is because of the grace and the glory of God. But I think we've lost touch with the reality of the first response that's appropriate and necessary when we realize into whose presence we have been allowed to enter. I think we've lost perspective sometime. When I say we, I include myself in this, of the significance of being able to be called a son and a daughter of the living God before whom the mountains will melt like wax before whom the heavenly hosts bow and declare, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy are you to receive all honor, glory and praise. I think sometimes we can treat the presence of God flippantly. And I think we tend to put the grace and the love of God first before his holiness, his righteousness and his awe-inspiring wonder and splendor. I think the world needs to get a perspective again on who our God is, and that's going to come through his people. 
And I think we need to be preaching grace and mercy and forgiveness as long as at the same time it's coupled with the reason why grace is necessary and mercy is necessary because our God is holy, righteous and an all-consuming fire. So John gains a perspective and he gains an awareness of himself. But the third thing that happens to him is he gains a perspective on the full holiness of Jesus. He's consumed by the holiness of Jesus. John really would have been aware of the Old Testament idea that God's radiating glory would have consumed and did consume anything that was lesser than it. Should it happen to stumble into God's presence? We see Moses asking God for something that seems inherently good, but God in his grace doesn't give Moses what he's actually asking for. Moses asks for God to reveal himself to him. And the Lord says this in Exodus chapter 33, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. I think sometimes what's lost in us is the grace that God shows Moses in that moment by not answering his prayer or his desire to see the fullness of the glory of God. I think sometimes we ask for the right thing, but we ask for it in ignorance. I think sometimes we come to do the right things, but we come to do them in ignorance, not remembering or taking into account the significance of the one whom we're asking the things from and we're coming to do the things for. The most significant thing for us as sons and daughters is to be with God. And the thought that the fullness of God lives in us now by the Holy Spirit should overwhelm us. It should cause us to come to church with fear and trembling, but not in a way that drives us away from God, but that drives us to him. God's word says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God shows mercy to those who fear him. God draws near to those who fear him. God's word speaks about the fear of God being a good thing. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that again. Another passage in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus as well reveals to us just how significant it was and how severe it was to be in the presence of God. It's a passage from Exodus chapter 28. And it says, And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and it sound, its sound shall, shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. Now, what this is speaking about is a specific uh, set of rituals and um, um, events and customs that needed to be undertaken by the high priest who once a year during the festival of Yom Kippur would enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was and the manifest presence of God was. And that's a whole other crazy thought to think that the uncontainable God contained himself to a specific location for the sake of his people. But once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. You've got the holy place and then the Holy of Holies where he entered into once a year to atone for the sin of his people, God's people, the Israelite people. But part of that process of getting himself ready to enter that place required him to wear a garment which had bells 
attached to the end of it so that when he entered in, the bells would make a noise and, and the people would know that God had accepted him because while the bells were making a noise, the body it was on was still moving and therefore still alive. And if the bells stopped, the people would have known that God did not receive the high priest. Something had gone wrong. Something had not been done right and the high priest would have died in the presence of God. I think what this reminds me of and what this needs to remind us of is that we cannot come flippantly into the presence of God. It was so deeply appreciated and so deeply revered and respected and honored, that ability to enter in to the presence of God. It was a privilege and an honor reserved only for one person once a year in Old Testament days. But because it has been so freely made available to us today because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross and the blood of Jesus that has been poured over us, I think sometimes we can forget just how significant it actually still is. We serve the God who was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Old Testament God that they served with fear and awe is the same God we serve today. And I think it's when we allow ourselves to be consumed with the reality of who our God is that we begin to see stuff in our lives explode and expand for the glory of God because our heart's attitude before the Lord is right. Church, we need to know that our God is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire then now and will continue to be a consuming fire. Here's what it says in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You know, church, Jesus was speaking to a woman, a Samaritan woman one day. He had met her at the well and he introduces himself to her. And part of their conversation included this woman explaining to Jesus that she understood that one day we would be able to worship God freely. And Jesus says, yes, you can worship freely. There's coming a day where his people are going to worship him, not on this hill or that hill or this place or that place, but in spirit and in truth. In other words, no matter where you are, because the spirit would be in us, we could worship God. You don't have to be at some specific temple at some specific time. You, should, you could worship God anywhere in spirit and in truth. And I think part of the truth that we embrace when we come to worship God is that he's a holy and righteous God and the spirit reveals that to us and so we need to come into the presence of God with fear and trembling with awe and wonder not flippantly I don't know if you've ever used a power tool or something that's incredibly dangerous to use and because you use it so often and because you become so afraid with hard works you tend to treat it with a bit of contempt that's happened to me often in my life but there's a story of one of my closest friends who uh, who is a farm manager on a farm in East London. And uh, he often, obviously, being on the farm, clearing bush and making way to, to uh, plow new lands and things like that, would use a chainsaw to cut down trees. 
and bushes and brush and all that sort of stuff. And eventually, once you've used it for a very long time, your fear of that type of tool wanes because you use it so often, you see it working and nothing really bad happens. And one day, and he'll even admit this, he got a little bit complacent with the chainsaw because he'd used it so much and his fear that he initially had of the machine was gone. And so he started to use it in a way that wasn't meant to be used. He started to forget to sharpen the blade because it had just cut so often so easily. And he forgot that you never get underneath a chainsaw and cut up with the chainsaw, especially when you're down on your hands and your knees. And especially if the blade is blunt and not tightened because bad things can happen. And one day a bad thing did happen. Because he was being so complacent and so flippant with the machine, he started to cut up and the chain hooked and it shot down and the blade cut him on his knee. And I don't want to go into too many details, but 120 or odd stitches later and some serious pain and uh, time in hospital later, he recovered and regained his fear of the machine that he originally had a fear for but had lost. I think, uh, I'm not comparing God to a chainsaw, but I think that same principle applies to us with the Lord. I think sometimes we can be so comfortable with the presence of God that we forget whose presence it actually is that we're in. I think we can become a little bit too familiar. I think we can become a little bit too gracified, where we forget that it is the King of glory who gave himself for us. I think we can forget that the God we serve is the one who, when he spoke, the sun came out of his mouth, that all we see and know was created just by him speaking. And I think we take that idea of being able to call him Abba Father and Dad and that he calls us friends. We take it for granted sometimes. And like any child, we can offer disrespect in the way that we approach and talk to our father. And I'm not saying that we don't do that. I think we need to embrace it and praise God that we can. But church, I believe God is calling us, like I said, back to that beautiful balance. I think there are times where we take for granted the blessing of being able to come into his presence as brothers and sisters and have him show up in a way that he is not when we are by ourselves. I think we take for granted the fact that we have the fullness of the presence of God in us by the Holy Spirit. That should cause us to explode, but it doesn't because the blood of Jesus is over us. It should cause us to marvel and wonder that what we see, God sees. What we hear, God hears. What we do, we do with God in us. What we say, we say with God listening. Because the fullness of God dwells in us. We have become the temple. Jesus is our high priest. We don't have to enter into the holy of holies over and over again. We are there because we are united with Christ in heavenly places. We are seated with him, it says in the word. There's no longer a specific place, but we are the temple where God's presence is manifest and where God's presence dwells. And we don't die and we're not consumed because we're covered by the blood of Jesus. That should cause us to fall to our knees every time we think about it. And to be honest, it hasn't for me and it doesn't for me. And I need to reclaim that and ask God for that back in my life. I think we need to, and I need to allow God to search my heart. I think we need a renewed perspective as John got on that day of the glory and the greatness of God and the significance of being able to sit under his word and worship and come together as brothers and sisters into the sanctuary to praise God together. I think we need to come to a place where we 
come to church once again for Jesus and where we experience moments of hushed silence because we are consumed with the reality of whose presence it is that we are in. And at the same time, have that coupled with an understanding of his grace and his love for us. And the fact that he's made it possible for us to enter so freely into his presence. So I think, so I think from our side in conclusion, what we can do is pray. I think what we can do is pray. I think there's a part that God plays in restoring this into our lives and into our church. And there's a part that we do. Something God does, something we do. I think about the Old Testament passage of scripture where God says to Joseph, not Joseph, to Joshua as he leads the people into the promised land. Before that happens, God says, consecrate the people. Tell the people to consecrate themselves for tomorrow I do a new thing. There's something the people needed to do and something God was going to do. I think the new thing God needs to do, but we need to search our hearts and repent of where we've been flippant and loose with our understanding of the greatness of God. And I think we need to come to God and allow him to search our hearts and find in us any offensive way. We need to consecrate ourselves again and pray and ask that God reveal to us in an appropriate way by the Spirit, the greatness and the magnitude of his glory and presence again. And we need to trust for him to do that as individuals and as a church. We need to pray seriously. I mean, pray, guys, that God would reveal to us and allow us to experience again that beautiful balance between the fear and reverence of God that is so needed and the grace of God that he gives to us. The wonderful news is that Jesus has entered once and for all into the Holy of Holies for us. He is our high priest. We are the temple. We can come freely because of what he's done. But I think we need to not forget the significance and the awe-inspiring truth about who dwells in us and into whose presence, like I said, we can freely come because of the price of Jesus and the price, the price that he paid on the cross. We will see Jesus face to face again one day. Every single one of us will stand before Jesus and we will bow our knees. And we will hopefully, as the disciple John did, fall at his feet as though dead because we're overwhelmed with the glory and greatness of Jesus. And we will have him as brothers and sisters and as sons and daughters of the living God feel him touch us with his right hand and we will hear him say, do not be afraid. Stand up. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We will experience that awe and that wonder and that overwhelming sense of the greatness and glory of God in our lives, as well as the grace and mercy of Jesus to restore us to our feet. We will experience it one day. But my prayer is that we don't wait for that day, but that it begins now today. That today we fall at our feet. That today the reverence and awe and wonder of God is restored to our lives and to our church. Not for our sake, but for his. For our sake as well, but mainly for his and for the kingdom and for the glory of God. In Jesus' name I pray this. Pray that you would be blessed as you go into the rest of the week or the week that lies ahead. That you would remember that the fear of God, once you allow that into your life, drives out the fear of anything and everything else. And the reason why a reverent fear and respect for God is so beautiful and so potent is because nothing else can compare to that. Nothing can stand up against you because if God is for us, who can be against us? Bless you. May you experience the wonder and fear of God coupled with the grace of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like prayer, uh, if you'd like someone to contact you from the church, please get hold of us on the number and email address provided below and would happily be in contact with you. But until then, we'll see you next week.
Bye.